Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So just before I launch into the episode, the productivity tool and data tracker that I've been working on called LifeTab is now available on the Chrome extension store. So if you want to find it, head to Chrome extensions and just look for LifeTab or head to talkoftoday.com where you'll find links to it. This is just a proof of concept. Um, there will be another version coming out over the next few weeks, which will have cloud integration and all that sort of fun stuff. So stay tuned. But in a nutshell, it is a digital productivity planner that pops up every time you open up a new tab. So check it out. All feedback is welcomed. Just email me at sam at talkoftoday.com and let me know what you think and what you might want from a service like this. So the topic for this episode is one that is close to my heart because of its connection to my stomach. Today, we are talking about the future of food. The disassociation between the food that appears on our plates and its origins allows us to be somewhat blissfully unaware or willfully ignorant of the global ramifications that our food choices have on the world. The consequences of the food you choose to eat are not just limited to your waistline, but have substantial effects on issues like climate change, overfishing, antibiotic resistance and pandemics, and deforestation. Here are just some of the stats that highlight the scale of the issue. Agriculture is the largest single cause of deforestation in the world, resulting in up to 80% of tropical deforestation. Livestock production occupies 70% of all land used for agriculture, or 30% of the land surface of the earth. The global food system, from fertilizer manufacture to food storage and packaging, is responsible for up to one-third of all human-caused greenhouse gas emissions, according to the figures from the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research, a partnership of 15 research centers around the world. And then there's the suffering caused as well, with tens of billions of animals being slaughtered annually. Richard Dawkins, a renowned ethologist, evolutionary biologist, and author, said that, In 100 or 200 years' time, we may look back on the way we treated animals today as something like we today look back on the way our forefathers treated slaves. At times, shocking footage from factory farms or documentaries like Cowspiracy can wake us from our reverie, causing some to switch to alternative food sources. But most of us revert back to our animal product consuming delicious and deleterious ways. The good news is, though, that science has some answers. Developments in cellular agriculture, plant-based meats, and other alternatives are beginning to create food that not only tastes and feels like the animal products they're replacing, but are also far more resource-efficient and healthier. With me to shed some light on this burgeoning industry is Dr. Liz Specht, a senior scientist from the Good Food Institute, a not-for-profit that operates as a central node between industry and policymakers. Their mission is to help create a healthy, humane, and sustainable food supply. Liz holds a bachelor's degree in chemical and biomolecular engineering from Johns Hopkins University, a doctorate in biological sciences from the University of California, and postdoctoral research experience from the University of Colorado Boulder. So please, sink your teeth into this palatable discussion with Dr. Liz Specht. 
My name is Liz Becht. I'm a senior scientist at the Good Food Institute, which is a relatively young nonprofit. Um, and our goal, in a nutshell, is to develop a healthy, humane, and sustainable food supply. And we're going about that by using food technology and market forces to move away from animal agriculture. So what sort of food are you making? What uh, type of products are you, or well, not, not making, but helping companies uh, produce? Like what is currently on the market? What are people researching or looking into? And um, I guess we'll get on to how does it taste, but I'm very curious. <laughs> sure. So our work breaks down into kind of two main areas. So there's the plant-based side of alternatives to animal products. Um, so these are things that are already on the market, um, your listeners are probably pretty familiar with them. Everything from a veggie burger to uh, a plant-based chicken nugget um, to plant-based milks. That's the one that that market sector has really, really taken off. So, are we talking off. soy milk, almond milk? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that, um, that sector in particular is really fascinating to us because the growth in it has just been tremendous. Um, within about the last 10 years, it's gone from, you know, maybe 1% of the market up to nearly 10% of the milk market here in the United States. Um, and it's, it used to be pretty much just soy milk, right? But now, as you mentioned, there's almond milk, there's coconut milk, there's, uh, there's cashew milk, there's hazelnut milk, mm. there's blends of all of these. There's sweet and unsweet. My coffee. <laughs> Do you? Great. <laughs> um, so this is one where really we've just seen an explosion uh, in demand for these products and the market is, is ready to meet that demand. Um, so we, we hope to look to that as um, sort of our poster child for what we think will happen in the coming years in the plant-based meat side of thing. Um, so replacing center of the plate dishes that typically we have uh, a burger or a steak or a chicken breast, things like that. Um, and there are already some, some really good mimics on the market um, that may be perhaps less prevalent in other countries, um, but they've really taken off in the United States and in Europe. Um, so that's the plant-based side of things. And then the other part of what GFI helps to work on and promote and foster innovation around uh, is this idea of cellular agriculture, which is essentially making products that are the same as animal products, but through a new production method. Uh, so there's ways to make uh, milk proteins and egg proteins and um, collagen, which is essentially what gelatin is. So all of these various protein sources that we get from animals using a different production platform. So something like yeast, um, very similar to the way we make a lot of products that are used in uh, the medical industry and the cell, uh, sorry, therapeutics industry. Um, so insulin, for example, is a protein that we've learned to make in yeast instead of isolating that from animals. And that we've done decades before. Um, and now we're turning that same production method to look at, at larger volume items like milk and eggs. Um, and then the other part of cellular agriculture is what's called clean meat, or your listeners may have heard it as cultured meat or lab-grown meat. Um, cultured meat just sounds meat. even worse than lab-grown meat because it's, <laughs> you're, it sounds like it's going off and there's just bacteria all yeah. over it. Yeah. Yeah, Some people actually, might be into that. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm happy with the, the standard, the clean meat. Let, let's stick with that. <laughs> yeah, the nomenclature has been a fascinating discussion, actually, um, because there is a lot of confusion around these terms, right? Um, so cultured to a food scientist does mean exactly what you said, that it's made using some type of bacterial culture or fungal culture. 
Um, and cultured meat is something like, you know, salami has actually been treated in that way. Um, so that's a, oh, a very I'm gonna stop thing. Eating than- salami. So a very different thing than what we're talking about here, which is essentially making meat through um, growing and and multiplying the individual cells that make up meat. So if you think about what meat actually is at a molecular level or a cellular level, it's just a collection of animal cells. So there's muscle cells in there, there's fat cells, um, there's a few other cell types that make what's called the connective tissue that gives it kind of that chewy, uh, sinewy feel. Um, that, that meat, and the, that, that's that's a common um, issue, or it might have been um, with earlier iterations of at least plant-based food, in that it just didn't have the same texture. And I found having had some some having eaten some myself, the texture is just so important when it comes to eating these things. There's something just extremely satisfying about chewing whatever it is, but just having that, really chewing it and having that meaty feel to it. Absolutely. And that's a big thing in food science is is the actual molecular basis of what we call mouthfeel. So mouthfeel. what's giving it that that juiciness? What's giving that plumpness that when you bite in, it's releasing that liquid that's got, you know, a mix of, of savory and salty and that umami flavor. All of this is coming from essentially biochemistry, right? That's what food is. It's so a collection you, of, this of is, this sounds molecules. Like a, it sounds like a really exciting and somewhat perilous thing to experiment with in that oh look this we've just made this new type of meat let's try it and it could either taste really good or might not taste as good and it's like a obviously people are going to be eating this stuff so it's a and you guys are the first to try all the people in you know the companies are the first to try it so it's a scary at this on one end but also delicious at the other there's a lot of iteration going on behind the scenes, for sure. There's, um, I think there's, there's certainly a higher standard now for new plant-based products that are being released. Um, some of your listeners may have had the, the experience that I had maybe about a decade ago. I had my first veggie hot dog, and it was just terrible. I just, <laughs> I just swore off plant-based meats forever. I just said, you know, I'll be vegetarian, and I'll go more the whole food step- direction, um, and, and the new products that have hit the market in the last couple of years are just leaps and bounds ahead of that in terms of their similarity to the meat products that they're, you know, attempting to replace, um, and the, the satisfaction they give the mm. consumer. So I think that bar is really being raised every year and these companies know that. So there's, um, you know, there's a whole field of study in food science called sensory evaluation. Uh, and that is all of, all of you know, evaluating what this means to a consumer. What do they like or not like about the feel of the product in their mouth, the moistness, the various flavor profiles. Um, and then based on the answers that consumers give to those kind of questions, they can go back, you know, from from the chemistry side of things or the biology side of things and know how to tweak uh, to mm. fix those. Just reverse engineering deliciousness. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so- and I think people, some people might be a little bit you know, turned off by this conversation, like, oh, this sounds like too much science. I want my food to be wholesome. I want it to be natural. Um, which, you know, if you want to go whole foods, plant-based diet, that's great. But I think a lot of people don't realize to what extent all of this food science is going into all of the products that they're typically all eating. I mean, a lot Um, of the stuff that we buy is just a concoction of different chemicals and this and that. I mean, it's gone through a lot of processes already. And I mean, 
spam might not be the best example, but any <laughs> type of meat that comes in a can, I, if you're happy to eat that and not try this stuff, then there's <laughs> there's any type of said. meat. Yeah, in general, I think people don't realize how highly processed even, you know, chicken breast in a package is. But if you go to a food science conference, um, there's whole sessions about, you know, how do you um, how do you engineer the packaging so that you're getting the right level of gas exchange and the meat doesn't start to look rotten in there or injecting in broth into the meat so that it's plumper and juicier mm. than it is, you know, just well, kind yeah, of on, 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 the, on, the, on the packaging. You can see that, you know, it's like 99% meat and 1% some sort of solution or, or something of that mm-hmm. nature. You can, it's, it's on the packaging. Like this is not 100% chicken breast, for instance. This is mostly chicken breast with a little bit of some, some. Right. Yeah. And, and what needs to be labeled there depends by country, right? Mm. So there's, I know here in the States, there's some percentage of the weight of a meat product that's allowed to be um, essentially broth that's been injected back into it, not inherently weight of the meat itself. And that doesn't need to be labeled if it's within that threshold. Mm. So I'd, I'd like to go back to um, cellular agriculture. Can you just talk me through how Firstly, how we might be able to, or how we might be able to make, you know, egg replacements, milk replacements, and meat replacements. I would like to hit on all three because I think people, like, I love cheese, I love meat, and I love eggs. And I'd love to know what are the, what, what's happening at the cellular level that is, well, how are you trying to recreate these, these delicious, amazing things? Or how yeah. are companies trying to do it? Absolutely. Yeah. So specifically for cellular agriculture techniques, the idea here is that you're making um, the exact proteins that are in those animal products. um, And you're doing that using what's called a host organism through recombinant protein production, which just means that you're, you're tricking this host organism into making the protein that you want it to. So for instance, you'll use yeast um, and you'll you'll give it all the information it needs to build a protein that's exactly like a casein protein and or a these, whey protein. Are these yeast genetically engineered to do that? They are, yeah. yeah. So part of that process is, um, is taking the gene for that protein that they don't normally make um, and putting it in them. And the incredible thing about biology is that organisms, you know, swap pieces of DNA all the time. So they're able to just seamlessly read that code and make mm. the exact protein that you're, just you're predicting. Out of curiosity, is this being done with CRISPR or was this, was this done with other means in the past? Yeah. This is using older techniques. Um, so this is a really simple process. Um, you know, now it's it's at the level where people often do this type of work at, you know, in a high school yeah, biology lab, lab yeah. even. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so this is using techniques that were developed ever since the 70s and 80s. Um, and obviously, there's been a lot of work along the way to improve the efficiency of this process and make it so that um, these yeast cells are making a lot of that protein so that you can get costs down, right? If they're if the bulk of the protein they're making is the protein you want, then you save a lot of downstream costs in terms of purifying it and so forth. Um, so there's been a lot of lessons learned along the, the way. But um, this is pretty, pretty uh, old hat technology applied mm. in a very new way and with with some tweaks to make it, um, like I said, very high efficiency and amenable to large scale. So let's say that we have, you know, a, a piece of steak or chicken. There's obviously the well, th- there's a number of different uh 
types of cells that go into this and there are different structures, right? Like, so you might have, you know, a fat vein going through a, a steak. So how sure. uh, a company's trying to recreate this down to just trying to completely mimic or are they, because I, I guess it's kind of 3D printing food in a way. We're going to have some muscle cells here and then some fat cells here and some this and that. And I guess how far along or how close to actual recreation of, you know, the perfect steak or the perfect chicken breast or, or whatever, are we? Yeah, that's a great question and a complicated question. So there's there's a handful of companies that have entered the clean meat space um, and are working on this, and they're all taking pretty different approaches, um, which that's, I find that's great. Ex- that's We'd, exciting, yeah. Yeah, we don't know which one's going to win. Most likely there will be multiple routes that are better suited for some products over others. Um, so, you know, some companies are are looking at kind of the the simplest market entry, which might be just that you have um, cells that impart, you know, some of the flavor and, and um, you know, the, the taste attributes of meat that you might mix into a larger product. Um, and then there are companies that are really taking that tissue engineering approach or that whole tissue approach where they want to um, do what's called co-culturing or growing alongside each other in the same uh, reactor all of the muscle cells, the fat cells, um, like you mentioned, uh, and there's strategies by which you could imagine that if you've got um, a piece of meat in that way, that you can actually direct cells, like you said, to be fat cells here and then muscle cells along this other axis um, to actually give, you know, something like marbling in a product. Um, and there's a number of ways people are exploring doing that. Um, and one of them is is by engineering the essentially the support structure that you put the cells onto so there's a scaffolding in a way exactly yeah so there's yeah a piece of material there that you kind of seed them onto and that they attach to and then they can form into their final cell types on that scaffold um and you can kind of use the scaffold to direct them whether they become muscle or fat i'm just i'm just imagining you know literally one stake to rule them all in a way you have that one scaffolding and you know where every time you buy it, there's going to be a line of fat here, or because obviously, if you're going to mass, if you're going to mass manufacture this, it might follow, you know, one set template. Um, and I'm just when you said a reactor, I'm just picturing, you know, lots of people in in lab coats with a lab. <laughs> they open this door and smoke comes out, and there's just this plate with this perfect steak on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the uniformity is an interesting question. I think. Um, I think to a large degree, consumers might be a little thrown off by that and they might want a bit of randomness there. Um, but that's something you can certainly program in too, right? You can have, um, if you have something that's kind of dictating where in the scaffold is going to direct scales, the cells towards, uh, fat and you want to change that marbling pattern, you can, um, you know, you can have yeah. different templates for that essentially. That'd be, that'd be so cool. You're just like, Oh, what am I feeling today? Uh, I want a slightly <laughs> fattier steak and you. Go to the supermarket yeah. or even press a few buttons in 20 years. Who knows? We might have this stuff in our, in our homes. So that's what I find really cool about all of cellular agriculture is that if you think about why we eat the animal products that we eat, like why milk from a cow, for instance, or why eggs from a chicken as opposed to all the other mammals or all the other birds, uh, likewise for meat, we didn't necessarily pick those because they're the best ones in any way. They, we picked them sort of as historical happenstance, that mm. those were the species we, we happened to domesticate, that happened to live near us and were the most docile. And, you know, we started building that relationship with them. 
Um, but what cellular agriculture does is it really frees us from those constraints, those yeah. historical constraints. Um, and, and we're able to really fine tune the properties of the foods that we're making uh, in terms of nutrition, in terms of taste, yeah. all of the above. So I've, I've, I've written down some questions because I've, I've been talking about this for, for a while uh, with, my, with my friends. Like we might be able to make chimera meat. You know, we might be able to get a little bit of this type of animal or possibly a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then just make some, I, I'm sorry to say this, but like Frankenstein meat, you know, like who knows? It's just like <laughs> get bits from everywhere and then just optimize for whatever you want. It could be you want like a chicken flavor with steak feel or who knows. And I, I was at a, um, a effective altruism meetup um, in Brisbane and, you know, uh, clean meat came up and we might even, and this is this, this is brought up. Actually, no, I think I brought it up just to stir the pot a little bit. But if we're just growing these things from cells, then is there are there any moral issues with eating human meat, or you know, if you just, I mean, which is which is kind of crazy to think about. But we might be able to just grow, you know, a uh, human burger or whatever, and that's going to be interesting. Like, we will we will we have crocodile meat? Will we have just some obscure, you know, dodo? meat who knows what what we could actually produce does that sound about right yeah i mean the doors are open <laughs> for doors all of that open, yeah. obviously the the first um line of sight of all these companies is replacing the meat products that consumers are already buying but you know in theory there's there's obviously some tweaking that needs to be done with the system to accommodate different cell types because they all have slightly different growth requirements and nutrient requirements but in theory, you're building a platform, um, mm. and the types of cells that you choose to use in that pl platform is is kind of up to you. Wow. So, <laughs> I think some of the listeners might be curious about the the initial inputs for the meat. Like, do, do they actually count as vegan or in the meat or cheese or, or whatever? Like, is are there any animal products that go into it at the very start? Because let's say that you know we have to take one stem cell from a turkey and that stem cell can make you know a trillion turkey nuggets that's still not that might not be considered vegan because the initial input might have caused a little bit of suffering and i mean i think you know we could just like make a statue of the turkey and say say thank you for, for giving <laughs> your life for all the chicken nuggets or turkey nuggets but i think that that might be something that people would be interested to hear yeah, I I mean my perception and and from talking to a lot of people who've made a dietary transition to vegetarian or vegan diet for a number of different reasons um is that most people are would be very very happy if production system moved in this direction. Some people aren't necessarily interested in eating it, which is often, you know, just kind of personal preference. Some people stopped eating meat because they simply didn't like the taste of meat. Um, but, but don't seem to have a moral problem with it. And I think if we're thinking from a utilitarian standpoint, there's no question that this is, you know, orders and orders of magnitude better than any of our current meat production mm. systems. And better in that, I mean, there's that common statistic that livestock or just, you know, animal agriculture causes a, just a ridiculous amount of emissions. So this is like the, the way you can eat your way to a better world, you know, a, a, a greener world without having to absolutely like, not only just yeah. produce emissions, but also limit the suffering of these animals as well. 
Yeah. So I'd love to touch upon, um, as, as you alluded to here, kind of the motivation for exploring these different um, alternatives to meat. So this applies to both plant-based methods and um, these cellular agriculture methods. Um, so there's, you know, I see moving away from animal agriculture as really the silver bullet to a lot of global problems. Um, climate change is one. The emissions contribution of animal agriculture is enormous. Um, obviously, we've all heard about methane and cow farts and, and how deleterious methane is to the environment kind of on a, a per gram basis. It's much more potent. It's like than- 20 times worse than carbon dioxide off the top of my head. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's really, really significant. And, you know, even the analyses that try to put a number on something that massive, like what's the contribution of it? Um, there are some that that put it at 50%. And we've talked to folks who do life cycle analyses who say maybe even that number is too low. Um, so the contribution to the climate is enormous, but also other environmental ills. So it's one of the major use, uh, uses of land in the world. Um, not only farming animals themselves, but growing all of the crops that go to feed the animals. If you think about how inherently inefficient animal agriculture is, you're using a living, breathing animal and funneling calories through it and trying to get some calories out at the end. But almost everything you put in, they burn off, which intuitively makes sense to us. We're animals. How many pounds of food do we eat in a year and how many do we gain? Um, So the same thing happens with farmed animals. We're putting in all of these resources and getting very little out, quite frankly. Um, And a lot of gas, a lot of hot air as well. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of gas, a lot of hot air. Um, and a lot of waste comes out the other end. So another, you know, big um, environmental burden of these huge factory farms in particular is the amount of waste runoff that they produce. And that gets into our rivers and our oceans, mm. causes these big dead zones, also yeah, causes I air pollution. S- I saw a, um, a video, I think a, a couple months ago, and it was of a, a drone flight over one of the pig farms in the yes. U.S. And you see the pig farm, which in itself is just disgusting. And then you see the... <laughs> the rivers and, and and nearby and the whole area is just filthy. And I think the people who live, you know, a couple of kilometers or miles for, for, for you guys, um, they say the stench is just unbearable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a, you know, some people have positioned that as a social justice issue because it tends to be lower income folks who live around those farms. Um, and often they'll take the manure that's coming from these these animal farms and spray it out onto the fields as a fertilizer. But a lot of that gets aerosolized and then is is you know, in the air that folks in that area are breathing. So um, it's really severe. Shitty so there's all of Yeah. So there's all of those environmental repercussions as well, not to mention things like deforestation and habitat loss as people are clearing new lands either uh, to graze animals or to grow more feed for animals. You certainly hear about that a lot in um, the rainforest in Brazil and so forth. I was this is complete, um, this is completely unrelated but I was just thinking about another way of looking at the deforestation issue and you know how much we've learned from nature right I mean we've gotten velcro from how geckos stick to to walls and all that sort of stuff so there are a lot of solutions that nature's kind of already come up with through its you know its awesomeness and if all of these plants and animals are just going extinct some that we've never even encountered before what is the value of these potential solutions that are going to waste as well? Like there might be a, a cure for for 
this for one disease in, you know, the skin of a frog, or we might be able to, there might be some sort of um, structure of a plant that we could copy and it could, you know, make um, building something super efficient or effective. So I think that's Absolutely. another cost that we are just not really considering when it comes to the deforestation. I mean, sure, nature's pretty and it's wonderful and it's marvelous, but that argument doesn't seem to be working. So I think yeah. this is just another way of, um, of, of framing the issue. I completely agree. Yeah, I think we we can't quantify what we're losing out on um, in those types of habitat loss situations. Mm. Uh, we can put a number on how many acres of land are being, you know, converted to farmland, but we don't know all of those those opportunity costs that you mentioned. Um, and then I want to bring up, uh, you know, another factor of animal agriculture that both of these production methods, both plant, plant-based and um, cellular agriculture or clean meat, um, are getting around. And that is the public health implications of animal agriculture. Um, so there's there's two main lenses to that. So there's um, one of the, the most significant ones that's been in the news lately is the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And a lot of those bacteria can be directly traced to factory farms. And there's there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that, you know, it's the perfect breeding ground for bacteria. They're, they're filthy, filthy places. These animals are often living in their own waste. They're in really, really close quarters. But secondly, a lot of them are being fed what's called a sub-therapeutic dose of antibiotics. So, you know, you always hear if you're given antibiotics by the doctor, you should take the whole course. You shouldn't stop halfway through because you might develop disease-resistant res- bacteria, right? So we're, we're actually doing that intentionally, essentially, in a lot of these um, factory-farmed animals. We're giving them low, constant doses of antibiotics just to kind of keep them essentially from getting flagrant infections in the face of these cramped quarters and these atrocious conditions. Um, and what that's doing is, is putting that selective pressure on those bacteria to become resistant. Um, so that's, that's one aspect. And then another is zoonotic disease outbreaks. Um, so a lot of, of so that means a disease that was transferred to human populations from animal populations. Um, so a lot of, of flu outbreaks actually start as, um, essentially mutant forms of avian flus or swine flus. We've heard those types of things in the news. Global pandemics. We've got, so this, I didn't, I didn't even think of that. That's, That's awesome. I mean, well, the yeah. fact that this could combat that the we potential. Can combat that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's why I call it really a silver bullet. So all of those environmental harms, all of the public health harms that really are, are you know, quite catastrophic. Like I, I was jotting some notes for this podcast because you focus so much on the future. And I was thinking of, you know, all of these issues that moving away from animal agriculture solves. These are really what I consider existential, existential threats. threats. Yeah, I was going to say, like... <laughs> The decisions that we make, no, no, that steak on your plate is killing the world. (laughs) It's contributing. Our eating choices are, you know, I mean, we might think, oh, it's just one person, but, you know, like multiply that by a couple billion and we've got a a hot world and a world where we might get diseases from, like, yeah, you're perfectly right. That is, um, it's it's a... And yet, sorry, finish your point. No, 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 (laughs) I've got nothing. This is... I've got nothing interesting to say. I was just going to keep on waffling. 
<laughs> and yet, you know, a lot of consumers sort of know at least some of that about animal agriculture and behavior change is hard, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, we've certainly seen a growth of the segment of the population that's choosing to eat less meat or has gone completely vegetarian or completely vegan. But eating is a really, you know, ingrained personal cultural thing and change is hard. Um, so I think and that it's not that's... Just, it's, not as, it's not just the choice. It's actually going to um, a grocery store and then buying... So, I mean, firstly, there's the um, the price pressure. I mean, a lot, we're all price sensitive, like obviously, yep. and we're all human beings as well. So instead of, you know, going to, um, when I say we're all human beings, we have, the, we're fallible. We're not, we're not awesome all of the time. I mean, mm -hmm. anyone who's walked through a grocery store starving has gone home with, you know, packets of just delicious, terrible foods. And you think, oh, what have I done? That's what have me. I done? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've got this affinity for shortbread. Like recently I've just been like having a packet a day and it's terrible, but it's delicious. <laughs> it's so delicious. Um, but the, the point that I was going to make is that because we are just not perfect, having to placing the burden of choice on, well, placing the burden on people is not the best way to go about it. If, if, if I could go into a grocery store and all of the packaging was biodegradable and it was all, you know, sourced from, you know, it was all ecologically friendly and yada, yada, yada. I don't have to make that choice. I don't really have to grapple with, oh, what do I choose? It's all there laid out in front of me. So the environment and, you know, selecting, I read this book called um, The um, the Origin of Wealth and I, w I won't go into like the, the, the crux of it, but he talks about uh, this guy, Eric Beinhofer, who's um, just, it was an, an amazing book. He writes about how the role of a government in a way is to create or to set the fitness landscape um, of society and make decisions that will benefit society and put in regulations if necessary to try and optimize for, um, you know, a better world. So instead of placing the burden on, on people, we might, you know, bring in certain laws like in France, you know, we I think they've just got rid of plastic bags. Like, oh, okay, so if we can't use plastic bags, well, then we're obviously going to have to change. If you take that burden away from people, oh, then we can create this better world without actually having to really grapple with, Absolutely. oh, God, like, I do want to buy this environmentally sustainable chicken or whatever, but that chicken over there is like $5 cheaper. Right. And I'm a college student and I don't have much money or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's exactly our our mantra is that, you know, if we can give consumers products that are better on all of these accounts and they compete on the attributes that consumers are actually thinking about in the moment when yeah. they buy their food, we're golden, right? The default choice becomes the good choice. So study after study has shown that the three attributes that consumers really are thinking about when they're buying food are taste, price, and convenience. And you hit on all of those. So if it's not there, you're not going to buy it. So convenience, access, you know, visibility in the store. If you have to go to some weird section to find a product like this, you're not likely to buy it. Um, so we push on all of those. Yeah. Price is a big one. A lot of people you just make their buying decisions based on price. They'll walk into the store. Of, of course not. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people just walk into the store, get the weekly sale flyer and kind of build their grocery list based on that. Um, and then taste, you know, and that's, that's the one where a lot of this R and D is really starting to make phenomenal products, mm. um, that compete on that. So taste how attribute. do the, um, well, are there any regulatory blocks in place at the moment? Are there any issues that, um, 
in terms of regulation, at least in the US or perhaps Europe or elsewhere, that are that might be holding the spread of this technology? Yeah, that's a great question. So we um, at the Good Food Institute, we actually have a policy department and part of their charge is to make sure that this regulatory landscape is is clear um, and that the the playing field for these types of products is level with animal products. Um, and part of the way that that they're going about that is by looking at labeling laws, like you mentioned. So there's in the United States, at least, um, and I'm not sure about other countries, but here in the States, it's technically not legal to call something like soy milk, soy milk. Isn't, yeah, it's an animal. Um, because it, milk yeah, yeah, is yeah. actually no, defined. I saw a video the other day. It's just like water it, with some ground nuts. You know, they, they've, they've done something. I think like the average bottle of um, <laughs> almond milk has like eight almonds or something in it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it, it's quite thrifty on the almonds. Alms. People get up and arms <laughs> about how water intensive almonds are. <laughs> and I'm like, there's not that many almonds in there. But uh but it's it's the dairy industry that's pushing back on these these plant-based milks being able to use the word milk um because dairy milk has really seen its sales plummet in the last several years in the United States. Um so essentially it's they're being obstructionist by trying to to intervene and say that these products can't call themselves milk even though you know the consumer is not deluded right the consumer doesn't think that almond milk is mm. milk from a cow that was fed almonds you know they know what it is they know that it's it's made from the plant but it's plant. just stuff that you put in your um, cereal and your so, coffee and so, people yeah. put milk in their coffee it's just like a easy marketing you're not going to say it's uh right almond water like i don't put water i don't have water in my cereal that's gross <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of silly to be arguing over it, but, um, those standards are being used to kind of unfairly, uh, leverage the, the industry's power. So we're trying what to about, smooth um, that pathway. Just labeling in general. Like I know that in, do, do all, uh, genetically modified foods in the U.S. have to be labeled genetically modified? Yeah, good question. So there are a few states that require that. It had been proceeding state by state. Um, a, a year ago, we had a, a federal level um, uh, law put into place that it would now be required uh, across all of the states, but that mm -hmm. hasn't been that hasn't kicked in yet. So they're still kind of sorting out, you know, what counts yeah, as I mean, genetically modified, what doesn't. Um, so we haven't put seen it out that there. I mean, that's kind of genetic modification without the the precision. I think that, that's something that's that frustrates me. It's just anti science. I don't think people really understand what genetic engineering is and like the the implications of it. I mean. There's something called golden rice, which was made, you know, a while back ago. Um, and mm -hmm. I think I, I can't remember what they've done, but I think something like 20 million children a year go blind or something from a vitamin deficiency. And they've just artificially, you know, genetically engineered rice to have this, have some of these vitamins in it. And it's great. I mean, it's, it's saving lives, but in some places it would be, some people might, you know, well, it's taboo because you're, you're playing God. Um, but. All we need to do is point to all the dog species out there and say, look, some of these dogs are not natural. <laughs> this, this, they are a travesty. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's certainly, a, you know, not a straightforward line between what's genetically modified yeah. and what's not. If we're using that term loosely, none of the crops that we're growing right now, whether they're, you know, labeled GM or not, mm. look anything yeah, like, like their corn. ancient and ancestors that. that we originally started. They look tough to eat. Like the seeds are huge. The seeds are huge. <laughs> 
Um, exactly. So I know they might not have to be labeled genetically modified, yeah. but would they have to be but I, labeled? I mean, the label like lab-grown meat would be terrible for, I mean, possibly terrible for, for the industry or like clean meat or whatever. Will, do, will they have to be labeled anything related to, you know, cellular agriculture or, you know, meat uh, replacement or... Yeah, I think that is still an open question right now. Um, so it's, it's, it remains to be seen whether, in terms of getting regulatory approval for clean meat, whether it can um, fall under the category of being substantially equivalent to conventional meat, um, in which case it, it's arguable that it could just have the label yeah. of meat. But I think that that's a conversation well, that has yet to the, play what out. What base these, these labeling laws on? I mean, if you just reduce it, I mean, if you're just using meat cells or, you know, the cells from an animal, like, is it not meat just because the the mechanism by which it's produced is um, slightly more artificial? It's still the base products right. are still the same. So it depends um, country by country how meat is actually defined in their statutes. So in some countries, uh, a part of the definition of what meat is includes the word slaughter. So if there's no slaughter going on, then it's it's kind of questionable is is does this fall under the category of meat or is this really a novel food? So a lot of foods regulatory systems, sorry, a lot of countries regulatory systems have a category for something called a novel food, um, which just means that it, it doesn't, you know, directly mimic something that's already in the marketplace and it needs to be evaluated uh, on its own. Um, I want to go back to something you said about uh, genetically modified organisms, and just to mention that a lot of the newer plant-based meats that are that people are exploring and looking at new protein sources for meat, a lot of those are um, taking into account the fact that that a lot of consumers don't like that genetically modified label and are trying to get away from that. So they're looking at uh, protein sources, things like chickpeas and fava beans and um, other types of, of beans and legumes that don't have genetically modified strains out on the marketplace um, because all of these these products mm. are trying to cater to what consumers are looking for, right? For better that, or for worse. So, I mean, um, people are, are the buying decisions that's really having a huge impact on you know these existential threats that we were discussing. And even though on principle, absolutely, you might want to genetically engineer these things. The market's going to do what the market does, and you have to play within the play within the rules or play within the play play the game that you're playing. Yeah, I think I think the lesson is always meet the consumer where they're at. Um, so if we're trying to make these these options and these decisions easy for them, let's meet the specifications that people want to see in their food product, and let's just make sure that we make it in this this better, more sustainable, healthier way. So how much does how much does it cost currently? How far are we from seeing? I mean, putting you know uh, supply issues aside and all of that. How far are we from having just you know ground you know clean ground beef available in the stores everywhere, or you know cheeses or milks or whatever? Like how far, in your opinion, do you think we are from just from these te- from these foods being widely available? 
Yeah. So I think, you know, you're going to hate me for shying away from this question, but I think the answer here really is crucial because, um, because it depends so heavily on both human capital and financial capital that are poured into the R&D for these companies. Um, so if you look at the, the handful of companies that exist, um, you know, they've gotten maybe a collective few million in investment so far. That's it. That's it. If I had, I, it sounds like a good bet to me. Like, oh, by the way, you can Absolutely. save the world and it's going to be delicious. Give us your money. I, if I had a million dollars, I would give That's it. the case, but. Because it sounds yep. like a good bet. I mean, there's no, there's no yeah. other alternative in my mind. I mean, if we just think, if we, you know, in terms of efficiency and all that, like animals are not good. They've got to do stuff. They've got to walk around and, you know, fornicate and all do all sorts of stuff. It's just a waste of energy. Yeah. So I think there is a really strong case to be made there for investors. And I think, you know, some investors say, well, my fund has a 10 year lifespan. Would this actually pay dividends within 10 years? Maybe. Um, But I think more importantly, all of the technologies that are going into developing these products um, have alternate revenue streams. And what I mean by that is that all of the the technological hurdles that these companies are tackling in order to bring something like this to market um, are also really, really valuable in any other application that uses cell culture. So a lot of stem cell therapies or cell-based therapies, um, biomedical research, people who are doing regenerative medicine or, you know, growing replacement organs for yeah, people. All of say. these you are essentially complex cell culture systems. Yeah, so no, I was, there's I was just, a, sorry. Yeah, so if if a company has a a great technology that allows you to say, you know, do a complex cell culture mixture and have vasculature in there to deliver nutrients to all the cells or something like that, that would immediately be applicable applicable in the biomedical industry and people would pay a lot of money for access to that technology. For sure, for sure. Is there anything um, in development or even on the market currently that you're super excited about or that is just delicious? Or uh, what, what are you personally excited about right now with regards mm. to the food, avail- what's available? Yeah, so this will be entirely on the plant-based side because I've not had the pleasure of trying clean meat. A couple of people on GFI staff have and I'm quite jealous of them. Um, Things that I'm really excited about on the plant-based side. So there's there's a burger that's being sold in the states here that maybe you've heard of. It's called the Beyond Burger. Yeah, you heard I've, of that? I've, I think I've had it. Um, I was in the U.S. last year, and it might have been okay. that or the Impossible Burger. One. Okay. The, yeah, I can't remember. Those so. both exist, and they're both phenomenal. The Beyond mm. Burger is much more widely available. So the Impossible Burger is right now only available through sort of a handful of restaurants. Okay, it's definitely Beyond that. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so that one I'm really excited about. I've, I've fed that to all kinds of meat eaters and, and they're really impressed with the product. <laughs> That's good. And with regards to cheese, sorry, we've got some birds and planes. I don't know if you can, if it's loud. Yeah, no, you're fine. How, how far are we at, if, or how many, how, what are the steps? Um, so I'll just wait for this plane to go, but I love cheese and I feel like cheese might be slightly more complicated or perhaps it won't be. We just like make the base products and then let the bacteria do its thing. But are we far from having, well, clean cheese? I don't think we're far from that. So I think that those products in which you're growing the proteins themselves um, through through yeast cells or, or other 
simpler cell culture, those will probably be first to market because that, as I mentioned, is relying on decades of technology of people doing really large um, fermentation, essentially, is, is what it's called when you're growing those big vats of, of uh, cells that are making those proteins. Um, so there's a lot of infrastructure in place in terms of, you know, the equipment to grow the cells as well as to purify those proteins out of them. Um, and then, like you said, with cheese, a lot of the magic that happens is, is after the fact it's in the cultures and in, in the process of, um, of turning that raw product, which is milk, uh, and the milk proteins in there, uh, into the cheese with all the flavors that we know and love. Love is the right word. Um, so I think we've covered everything that I've, uh, I've wanted to ask. Um, I'm, I'm super excited. I just cannot wait until meat alternatives or clean meat is available on the shelves because I'm, I'll buy it straight away. And I think there are a lot of people who are just, who've, we've, a lot of people have seen, you know, Food Inc. or Cowspiracy and all that and they feel terrible. Right. But when it comes to making decisions on the day to day, you know, you go to grandma's house and she's like, oh, steak for dinner. And you're like, mm, okay. Right. If you right. insist. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited. And I think a lot of people out there are as well. So doing great work, uh, and I, it must be an exciting place to be. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say to the people listening, um, before we wrap up? Um, let's see, I'm trying to see if I hit all of my talking points here. I think one thing that I'd, I'd like to emphasize is, um, how much sort of the whole world sees this shift coming and the need to move away from animal ag. Um, and I think that that industry wide shift in the food industry and the current players that are already there will really smooth this transition. So a lot of times people ask like, do you, do you think you'll get pushback from industry or, or opposition from animal ag or something like that? But what we've actually seen in the last couple of years is those big animal agriculture food industry players really getting on board with this movement. Um, they really see consumer preference trending really strongly away from animal products and they're looking to get in on that movement. Yeah. So, I mean, they're money driven. That's, that's what it comes down to, right? How to make, exactly. how to make the most amount of money. Yeah, there was um, actually a, a editor's letter. Um, I think this was January of last year in a magazine called Meeting Place Magazine, like M E A T, Meeting Place, um, which is the meat industry magazine essentially. And this letter was saying that um, that meat industry players should really be putting R and D into making these plant based alternatives or clean meat alternatives um, and rebrand themselves as protein companies rather than meat companies. Um, and we've we've seen some of those companies actually acting on that. So you may be familiar with the meat company Tyson. Yeah. That ring a bell. So it's mm-hmm. one of the biggest ones it's here huge. in the States. Yeah, they're international as well. Um, and they have a new venture fund called Tyson New Ventures. And their very first investment was into Beyond Meat, the same company that makes that Beyond Burger. Nice. So, Hedging their bets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's you might see it as bet hedging or, you know, making sure you don't miss out. But, um, you know, just from talking to folks in the industry, they're really being proactive about this shift. And I, I see that as really, really promising. Yeah, that, that's exciting. That, that, that's really exciting. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I was just going to say one, I had one more question, but it just popped out of my head. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> if you're thinking, I will do a shameless plug for GFI. Oh, so please, got, please plug, plug away. Got, 
<laughs> a phenomenal blogger who runs all of our social media, writes our blogs and all of that. So sign up for our newsletter. You will get the latest and greatest from all of the exciting trends happening in this industry. We are also growing very quickly as an organization. So we have at the moment, I think, 16 open positions. Um, so if any of your, so your what sort listeners... Of, what, what sort of positions, just because the people okay. here might be listening... Yeah, across yet. the board. So there's a couple of science positions. So to help interface with the academic community, um, and environmental and health scientists, mm -hmm. uh, we've got a couple of fo policy folks on there that we're looking for, um, in the communications team, people like graphic designer even. Um, so really skill sets across the mm -hmm. board. And then we are, uh, starting to branch out internationally too. So regardless okay. of where you're from. Check us out. It's www.gfi.org slash jobs for those okay. job lists. Awesome. Well, thank you for the plug. And I remembered what I was going to say. Um, and this is more targeted towards the Australian listeners, but Australia, we, we export a lot. We've got a big livestock industry and a big, you know, fossil fuel industry as well. And I don't think the politicians are really, I don't think they're thinking about the fact that not only uh, fossil fuel is, you know, the demand for fossil fuel is going down, but in the near future, the demand for livestock, given these developments, might reduce as well. So we've got, we have some issues here that we really need to be thinking about in terms of, um, well, maintaining, uh, well, even if it's just jobs for people in Australia. So um, if you're listening out there, politicians, Watch out. You need to be careful. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, we're seeing a similar trend here as the companies that really were early adopters of, of uh, green energy and clean energy. Mm. So people who embraced that shift rather than sort of fighting it through invested oil interests and so forth um, are now the world leaders of that technology that's, yeah. that's now being exported and all over the world. It's cost effective. That's the thing. It's profitable. I mean, I, I don't understand the issue. I, I've just um, released a video on um, the YouTube channel about how much would it cost to crowdsource a solution to the green energy crisis. So, when doing a bit of research, I found that annually we give over ten, no, five trillion dollars in fossil fuel subsidies. Wow, five trillion. Okay. Now, when asked how many, um, so. Leonardo DiCaprio did a documentary on climate change called Before the Flood, and he spoke to Elon Musk about the gigafactories that they're producing, which are massive battery-making facilities. Mm -hmm. And Elon Musk said they ran the numbers on how many uh, gigafactories would be necessary to transition the whole world to sustainable energy, and they needed 100 factories, which would cost, if they all cost the same amount as the first one, $500 billion dollars. Which is less than ten percent of fossil fuel subsidies. Drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Let's, We've let's, got this the same situation going on here. So our I'm not sure about Australia. I assume it's true there too. But our government um, here in the states very heavily subsidizes animal agriculture, and you know we're we're. Uh, pushing for things like inclusions in the farm bill and uh, the appropriations bill where they're deciding, you know, research funding allocations and so forth, that there is no better place to put your money than to help support research and development to make um, better, you know, more efficient, cleaner, healthier plant-based and clean meat products. All righty. Well, I think we'll, we'll wrap up there. So thank you very much for being on the show. And it's a pleasure. Thanks to so you. much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Well, thanks again to Liz for taking the time to have a chat. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please 
Give us a rating on iTunes, share it with your friends, or if you'd like to support the podcast directly, uh, please consider becoming a patron, uh, and you can do that at talkoftoday.com slash, oops, that's wrong. You can do it at patreon.com slash talkoftoday. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, thank you for sticking around until the end. The next episode is on the death of aging with Dr. Aubrey de Grey, which is a fascinating topic because, well, we're talking about living forever and a bit of the science behind it. So if that at all sounds like it interests you, which I'm sure it does because death, I'm sure to most of you, seems like an eventuality and we may be able to forestall it, according to Dr. Aubrey de Grey. And that is all for today. Adios!